0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: That's uh, 500 people we talked to today.
2: That only leaves about 9,000 to go.
1: Whoa, 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 slow down. What's going on? One of the guards got in a fight with the dim down down and now everyone's going crazy. I have to find my dad. Whoa. the wall you can't
3: do this i can do anything i want now oh, that's the wall now
1: enough.
3: well look who we've got here way to show initiative new boy take him and throw him back there along with the rest of our uh guests what the hell do you think you're doing i think I am making a political statement. Maybe if we're lucky, I might even be able to stage a nice little uh, photo op. I hope that meets with your approval.
4: morning, London. It is Thursday, August 18, 2011. I'm Robert Vaughn. I'm Bob Metz. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right.
2: Fade colour, colour into black and white. Under the everything
4: will be alright. And welcome again to the show. I've returned after a two-week hiatus. And uh, glad to be back here. I just listened to last week's show myself um, from my vacation. And uh, if you haven't heard it, it's uh, archived on our website at justrightmedia.org one of the most fascinating shows I've you're heard. you just dying to take a shot at I'm me. I'm I, I know, you, you can't wait. We're going to do it next week. You took on yeah. determinism versus free will, and I know why you did it yep. while I was away, because uh, I have a lot of disagreements. I, I wouldn't have been able to
2: finish my points
4: if you here. <laughs> so now i got them mo- out. You can say whatever you want. Okay, you're yeah. going to have to go away for a week while yeah. I re you. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the show we have lined we up do, for we you. Did
2: a, we did get some interesting mail and letters and comments on we that did. show, and we'll talk
4: about that last, or last week. You
2: know, I'm going back in time already, do determinism see uh, next week yeah
4: yeah what well, the show we have lined up for you this week is actually going to be quite good as well i'm sure because we're going to be talking about in the first half the london riots things like self-esteem and the power of productive work and bob you're going to be after the break at the bottom of the hour talking about ideology and government debt
2: as a general theme, as yes. a general and, theme, uh, and yeah. we'll see where that
4: goes because I think we got enough material there
2: to do five shows with, but yeah. we'll see.
4: Also, you just gave me a copy of uh, a book by Salim Mansur mm-hmm. uh, in anticipation of us uh, talking to him perhaps later on in the year or uh, next in, month, in or a few so. weeks, yeah, yeah. And Salim Mansur's book is "Delectable Lie: A Liberal Repudiation of Multiculturalism," and I, and I would I would encourage everybody out there to go online and pre-order it from. Uh, your favorite bookstore online, because Salim Menser has something very important for us to to listen to. But getting into today's topic of the London riots, by now we're all familiar with the England riots a few weeks ago, and by now we're all familiar with all the reasons given to explain the violence. The poor education system, single parenting, there's a whole host of them here. Lack of father figures, lack of political leadership, ineffective policing, Racial tensions, multiculturalism, football hooliganism, Facebook, Twitter, cell phones, violent musical lyrics, the poor economy, youth unemployment, lack of religion, lack of values, lack of empathy. And this is my favorite Hoodies. As a matter of fact, in today's National Post, there's a little tiny article there. Kids get no respect. Sun Media's Ezra Levant, a friend of this show, a friend of ours. Blames the riots in Britain on rap music. Quote, What grown men wear hoodies in public? Or their underwear up high and their pants down low? Unquote. And suggests British kids of a certain age didn't realize Ali G was satire. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's got a great point there. What adult, what self-respecting adult, anybody over 18 and over, goes around dressed like that? They. It, I think it's telling. But you know something? All of those excuses or reasons for the violence that we experienced and not only that violence but just harken back to the g20 riots in toronto the vancouver um, nhl riots two months ago by the way there's still been no arrests from the vancouver riots and yet in london and in england rather there have been over 1800 arrests convictions and they've been sentenced already
2: Yes, and some of them, I understand. Somebody got sentenced, or a couple of people got sentenced for four years four for inciting
4: violence that nobody showed up for. They just put
2: a yep. message
4: on the internet, and they said, "Let's do this." Nobody did it. They still got charged. And now they're actually saying that some of the some of the um, the sentencing is being disproportionate, and they're going to be challenged, and they're going to lose some of those sentences. But, no doubt. Uh, uh, I actually have I'm of two minds of that, but I th- I think that yeah, if you're going to be putting on Facebook a uh, a call. To start a riot at a certain spa- uh, spot in the city in time, and you expect people to go out there and commit violence, then, yeah, you should be You've declared bars. an
2: intention to commit violence yeah.
4: and, and damage. That's the same as threatening somebody with a gun. By, by the way, the maximum sentence for that in Britain is 10 years. They mm-hmm. got four. And um, I have no sympathy for them, really. Because I don't either. No. Not, not in the broadest <laughs> sense,
2: because it's, it's a stupid thing to do. But then it creates a problem of disproportionality in sentencing. Yep. When a person goes to jail for four years for just posting something that nobody did anything about, while another guy goes to jail for ten years for selling pot seeds oh, <laughs> or, yeah. or something like that, you know, or, or even gets less for, for a serious crime of
4: violence. Well, apparently during uh, the riots in London, um, there was one instance of a only... guy taking a, a can of bottled water and another person of uh, helping himself to an ice cream cone in a looted shop. They got six months in jail. Again, I don't have very much sympathy. Theft is theft. That's not your water, that's not your ice cream cone. Where, where's your hmm. uh, sense of uh, morality? It's not about the, the item taken, it's about the action taken. That's right, yeah. Now, just think of all those things I listed as being the causes of the violence that people think are the causes of violence. And all of them, and many more, they all have one thing in common, which, with rare exception, I think, is going unmentioned. And that is to to coalesce it all, to assimilate it all under the one rubric of philosophy. What is the common philosophy? The philosophy which allowed those actions in London and in England to take place is that of altruism, the philosophy of selflessness, selflessness, the philosophy of despair, the philosophy of... Immanuel Kant. Now, a lot of you out there don't know Immanuel Kant, but if you actually researched the man and his philosophy, I think you'll find that he is perhaps the single person, if you were to point a finger at, who is responsible for a lot of the ills we've seen in society, not just over the last few months, but going back to even Hitler. Hitler was a, a fan of Immanuel Kant. Oh, yes. Now, for every human action, and a big must...
2: fan of and a big fan of uh, sacrifice. Yes, that's why he felt that the Aryan race was superior because the Aryan race was most willing to
4: sacrifice to f- itself. Exactly. which is actually an insult. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. if you think altruism and yeah. selflessness are virtues, think this: Adolf Hitler was an altruist. He believed in selflessness. He believed in social duty. He believed all dictators do exactly. because they want you to sacrifice yourself to them. Simple as that. (laughs) It's like a god. Now, for every action, there has to be an underlying philosophy of the person taking the action. The decision to stay in bed or to get out of bed is based on your philosophy. Whether you're able to explicitly articulate your philosophy or not doesn't negate the fact that you have a philosophy. We all do. Now, the vast majority of us are unable to actually properly define their philosophy or even have the vaguest notion that they even have one. They know nothing of metaphysics, epistemology, um, ethics,
2: or even left and right wing when it gets up into Politics. the political
4: level. Yeah, yeah. Aesthetics. Some people don't know
2: am I left wing or am I right wing. They, yeah. they they're not sure of what the distinctions are. Now, because there are fewer and fewer distinctions oh, out that's there. That's yes. <laughs> probably fewer. part of the reason.
4: And whether you're happy in your work or home life or miserable is also based on your philosophy. Whether you're whether or not you vote or don't vote, or who you vote for is based on your philosophy, and whether or not you participate in a riot or stay at home and lock your doors while the world goes to hell in a handcart is also a consequence of your philosophy. Now, Bob, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. You're a little older than I am, but that's my era, 60s and 70s, and I can still remember... Well, we're not
2: that different. I was a 60s and 70s kid, too. Yeah, but and
4: I think you got nine years on me or something. Maybe. Hmm. That era, though, and... I can still remember political pundits at the time arguing over the cause of youth crime in the major American cities of New York, Detroit, Los Angeles. Canadian major cities had much less, of course. Uh, there was Toronto the good when I was growing up. But uh, given time and the deliberate attempt by our liberal socialist governments, we can now say that we have fully cosmopolitan cities which can rival the world's greatest cities, at least in crime and rioting. Thank you. and The philosophy of altruism. And of sacrifice is drummed into our heads from the day we are born. Our parents tell us to share our toys with our siblings even though they're our toys and we don't want to. Our teachers tell us the evils of capitalism and materialism and how we should conserve and deprive ourselves of the pleasures and convenience lest we destroy the environment. Our priests and mullahs preach that we must be good samaritans and give to the poor or we're being immoral and selfish and we'll go to hell for our greed and our politicians tell us to cut back conserve and pay more in taxes so that starving somalians or ethiopians and Bangladeshians or wherever can eat and so that your neighbor can have that chemotherapy to remove that tumor on her nose from getting to much sun while she was in mexico (laughs) whatever reason now everywhere we turn from our music our newspapers schools churches tv programs and political commercials we are told to give give and give until we are left a hollow shell so that others can benefit and the reciprocal side of this by the way the whole joke of that is that who the heck's a beneficiary who's feeling
2: like they're getting better off out of all of this you know for all the sacrificing going on The problem is 100% of us are sacrificing. Where is the benefit going? We don't see it. Not through that action. It can't. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't. But on the other side... It's a lose-lose situation. That's something I want to talk
4: about, maybe if we can get time in the show today. Probably, yeah. Lose-lose. And the reciprocal side of this coin, of course, is that uh, we have the recipients of our forced generosity. We have children growing up knowing full well that they don't have to work in order to survive. They'll be given free subsidized housing if they ask for it, free abortions should they get pregnant, free baby bonuses should they decide to keep the children they bear, free education, free medical care, free food, free welfare payments, and when they're ready to retire from such a tough life, free pensions and old age security payments. The incentive to work is driven out of us from two fronts. Should you choose to work, you're taxed, regulated, and controlled at rates and extents that make you wonder why you should get out of the bed in the morning anyway. If you don't have a job and you wonder why you should even look for one, since the state will provide you with all you need to survive quite comfortably in a style our grandparents would only think is luxury, what's the incentive? What these disincentives to work do for the self-esteem of a person strikes at the root of the violence we've been seen perpetrated by the mobs of youth around the world our nature as humans as rational beings dictates that in order to survive we must work productively left to nature alone we'll die there's no doubt about it the fruit will not fall off the tree into our open mouths well, if you position yourself properly. But of and course, that could, that
2: could be considered
4: work. <laughs> the trees you are not going to fall that. and arrange themselves into shelters to keep out the cold on, the, on their own. Sheep are not going to shear themselves and knit sweaters for us to wear. <laughs> <laughs> we must conform nature to fit us. We must engage in productive work using the only tool nature provides us, a rational mind. We have to create, build, cultivate, Exchange value for value in order to survive. And not only that, to thrive, to enjoy our life. It's what makes us human beings. To take this away from us, either by robbing us to provide for the welfare of others, or by providing for us at the expense of others, it destroys who we are. It violates our very nature, it destro- destroys our self worth. The person who does not have to lift a finger in order to live can value nothing. And with nothing to value, there can be nothing to motivate us into action. Wow, that's powerful. It is. We, we how, come, become, how come
2: our politicians don't know that?
4: Maybe they do. Then they're evil. They're evil, yeah. We become immune <laughs> to the stimuli around us. The lines between good and evil become blurred and indistinct without values. Our actions... If we take any, become random and haphazard. We lash out indiscriminately at anybody and anything for no good reason. Or conversely, we turn inward and wallow in a despairing stupor. We turn to drugs to stimulate our starving starving minds. We turn to suicide to end the meaningless existence that our state has imposed upon us over the last 60, 70 years. And with that uplifting thought, <laughs> <laughs> we are going to take a short break. And during this break, you're going to be hearing from the age-old argument we've been talking about in the '60s and '70s, "All in the Family." Back in uh, oh, what was that about seventy? Yeah, amazing. 7, I've never ever
2: played an "All in a Family." This is clip from the yet. first
4: episode of "All in the Family," and Archie and Michael the Meathead and talk about the very things we're talking about now. What's responsible for the youth crime.
2: And then following that up on the other side is of course um, Ayn Rand on the Tom Snyder show in 1979 explaining what she sees as the causes behind these, these kinds of activities. It, it's nothing new. It's been going on for a while. So we'll be back. Okay. Right after this.
1: What the hell is it nowadays? Will you tell me girls with skates up to here, guys with hair down to there? <laughs> I stopped in a gent's room the other day, so help me there was a guy in there with a ponytail. <laughs> My heart nearly turned over me. I thought I was in the wrong turret. Why do you fight it? The world's changing.
5: That's right. That's what the Reverend Felcher was saying. You two should have heard him. Of course, Mr. Religion here wasn't seeing eye to
1: eye with the sermon. What sermon? That was socialist propaganda, pure and simple. Don't give me that look. You didn't think it was so hot, neither.
5: I said it was different, that's all. But I didn't curse the Reverend from right there in the front.
1: <laughs> he never heard me. <laughs> Besides, I ain't sitting still for no preacher telling me that I'm to blame for all this breakdown and law and order that's going on. Why not? we're all to blame for not paying attention to the cause of it. The cause of it? I'll tell you the cause of it. The cause of it is these sob sisters like the Reverend Felcher and the bleeding hearts and weeping Nellies like used to. Like us? Yeah. I think
0: we better eat now. No, no, no. Wait a second.
1: Wait a second. It's you. Me. Yeah, that's right. You, the property owner, which with your 24-inch TVs and your four-slice toasters and your ice-making refrigerators. That's all you care about, Archie, is what you got and how you can keep it. Oh, well, you'd care about it, too, sonny boy, if you had anything... <laughs> you wasn't living off for me without a pot to peel a potato. <laughs> Wait a second. You're the one, you're the one who said I could stay here while I was in school. I thought it was going to be for a year while you learned to trade or something. I didn't think you was going to wind up in college learning how to be a subvasive. <laughs> about, that's, that's ridiculous. I just want to learn a little bit about society so I can help people. People? Your mother-in-law and me is people. Help us, will you? Go to work. <laughs> I know what's bothering you. You're upset because I was nailing you on that law and order thing. You nailing me? Yeah, that's right. Now I'm, now I'm going to tell you something. Oh, Michael. No, no, wait a second. I, I'm, I'm sorry, Gore. I know I promise, but I feel I got to say this. You know why we got to break down in law and order in this country, Archie? Because we got poverty, real poverty. And you know why we got that? Because guys like you are unwilling to give the black man, the Mexican-American, and all the other minorities their just and rightful, hard-earned share of the American dream.
5: Who said he wasn't smart? (laughs) That's beautiful,
1: Michael, beautiful. Oh, that's
5: gorgeous.
1: (laughs) Now, let me tell you something. If your spics and your spades want their rightful share of the American dream, let them get out there and hustle for it just like I do. Yeah, but Archie, you're forgetting one thing. You didn't have to hustle with a black skin. No, I didn't have to hustle with one arm and one leg neither. So what? So you're admitting that the black man is handicapped. Oh, no, no more than me. He's just as good as me. now I suppose you're going to tell me that the black man has had the same opportunity in this country as you? More, he's had more. I didn't have no million people out there marching and protesting to get me my job.
5: No, his uncle got it for him. (laughs) Why are we being taught? Because the ruling philosopher today, in Harvard and everywhere else, is Immanuel Kant. And that's the real villain of our age. It's not Karl Marx. You mean
3: he's the one, huh? He is the one. Kant is the one. Okay.
5: It's not Karl Marx, and it's not even religion. So I do not approve of religion, as you know. But those are not the villains. The villains is Immanuel Kant, who preached that man's mind is not valid that the things you perceive are not there, they're not real. Things in themselves, as he preached, are something which exists in another dimension. Your world is only phenomenal, as he called it, and then there is this nominal world, which you cannot perceive in any way, whatever, and that nominal world is the true reality. Only you can not perceive it, so you better live here on earth and do your duty and uh, your duty is some kind of voice that comes from these other dimensions which you can't know well how does he know he doesn't tell you but he tells you that uh, morally you have to do your duty what does your duty consist of of doing things in which you can take no possible interest and no advantage to yourself you know that he is even worse than an altruist. An altruist would tell you, you shouldn't be happy but you should sacrifice for other people and then your moral. Kant goes beyond it. He says, if you do things because you have any goal, whatever, even the welfare of others, your uh, action is not moral. Or as he puts it, it has no moral significance. To be truly moral, you should do things out Of which you get nothing whatever neither for yourself nor for others if you can achieve that kind of uh, being a total zero offered for being eaten by any cannibal then you're moral now that's the philosopher who rules today's life if that is what the universities are preaching count himself and all the endless variations of him and the derivatives from him All modern philosophy are little illegitimate Kantians, if you know what I mean. If that's what children are taught, once they leave college, what do they bring to life? What you see today. We're kind of reaching the visible climax of Kantianism. They take dope. They try to kill their mind in every way possible. They leave range of the moment. They have no values, no goals, and no selfishness are terribly unselfish because i haven't got one independent idea in
4: the world and welcome back that was ayn rand being interviewed by tom snyder and you can actually find that entire interview online at youtube just type in ayn rand and tom snyder and you can see that amazing uh, interview there's also other ones there bob um the interview with mike wallace is another great one but um what ayn rand is talking about there is the philosophy underlying a lot of the problems we have today and I was previously talking before the break about the necessity of having to work productively not only to survive but to enjoy life and I think that only by having this need this, 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 this necessity of working and desire to work do we determine our values and only by having values do we set goals for ourselves and only by having goals do we have the motivation to create and produce and do what's necessary to try and reach our goals and attain that which we value. Do you
2: remember that old saying, necessity is a mother of invention? Yes, yes. Well, there's a truth behind that, isn't there? Uh-huh. It's, ac- it's actually quite accurate. Sure, because if you don't need to do anything, why are you going to do it? That's right. <laughs> Even if it's something you enjoy.
4: You know? you know, Bob, the welfare state, it's robbing us at every turn not only of the fruits of our productive effort, we all know about that, we're all taxed, but at the motivation to even try to achieve anything. The results of 70 years of creeping welfare statism, and it's only really started when uh, the veterans started to come back from the war. You know, people started to feel sympathy for these people who sacrificed their lives, to probably use the word inappropriately, but but um, went to war, and they started to think about veterans' benefits, and that became benefits for everybody until now we have this overwhelming welfare state. It's turned us from productive humans into mindless, valueless animals who either work for the benefit of others or lay about and reap the rewards of the efforts of others. In Ayn Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged, she talked about the moral necessity of productive work in Galt's speech. I don't know if Everybody out there is familiar with the novel or Galt's speech, but I certainly would encourage you to pick up a copy and read it. It's actually one of the most uh, read books after the Bible. I think it's the second mm-hmm. most popular book after the Bible, and rightfully so. Now, this is a quote. It's a rather lengthy one, but I think it's, it says a lot that that's um, already been said, and Ayn Rand says it a lot better than I do. Again, from Galt's speech, I quote, "...productiveness is your acceptance of morality." your recognition of the fact that you choose to live, that productive work is the process by which man's consciousness controls his existence, a constant process of acquiring knowledge and shaping matter to fit one's purpose, of translating an idea into physical form, of remaking the earth in the image of one's values. That all work is creative work if done by a thinking mind, and no work is creative work if done by a a blank who repeats in uncritical stupor a routine he's learned from others that your work is yours to choose and the choice is as wide as your mind that nothing is more that nothing more is possible to you and nothing less is human that to cheat your way into a job bigger than your mind can handle is to become a fair corroded ape on borrowed motions and borrowed time and to settle down into a job that requires less Then your mind's full capacity is to cut your motor and sentence yourself to another kind of motion, decay. That your work is the process of achieving your values, and to lose your ambition for values is to lose your ambition to live. That your body is a machine, but your mind is its driver, and you must drive as far as your mind will take you, with achievement as the goal of your road. That the man who has no purpose is a machine, that coasts downhill at the mercy of any boulder to crash into the first-chance ditch, that the man who has, who stifles his mind is a stalled machine, slowing, slowly going to rust, that the man who lets a leader prescribe his course is a wreck being towed to the scrap heap, and the man who makes another man his goal is a hitchhiker no driver should ever pick up, that your work is the purpose of your life and you must speed past any killer who assumes that right to stop you that you, that any value you might find outside your work any other loyalty or love can be only travelers you choose to share your journey and must be travelers going on their own power in the same direction Unquote. so she's equating productive work here with a, an automotive theme I guess mm-hmm. but the cult of the altruist has permeated all walks of life and all social strata. When Bill Gates feels the need to give away his billions, which, by the way, is his right, of course, out of some misplaced sense of guilt by being successful, a lot of people feel guilty at being successful because of what I talked about before, about the constant badgering by our parents, our teachers, our priests, our politicians, that anyone who is successful is greedy and should give it away. Just listen. Um, last week, to Obama's stooge Warren Buffett, calling for greater taxes on the rich—a strictly evil suggestion. Then we know, listening to that, that even men of great productive capacity, like—that's you know,
2: actually a person getting up in front of people and asking somebody else to go steal for him. Yeah, totally evil. I, I
4: just—is
2: <laughs> there a moral gap there somewhere? Yeah,
4: you there know, is it's, not, moral it's not.
2: Gap. Yeah, it's not even considered. It's not even thought about. Yeah. Just think of
4: of, of Buffett of gates giving away this money or saying that the rich should pay more uh, we we can see these great men of great capacity well great until they start talking like that they're not immune to kant's philosophy of selflessness and despair and the cure for this philosophy and subsequently i think for the cure of the violence that we've seen in england this month and likewise riots throughout the world is to arm ourselves with a philosophy which rejects mysticism and kant and the evil notion that we are our brother's keeper, which extols the virtues of man as a rational being which champions the individual over the group and which establishes a moral code for living peacefully and productively. That philosophy is called objectivism. It's been around for about 50, 60 years. It's postulated by Ayn Rand. And once I think that uh, our society, which is slowly coming to realize this, grasps objectivism understands it and starts to live by it only then can we understand what's going on with the violence that we see around us what do you think Bob? well
2: certainly ayn rand's uh, philosophy opened many eyes and and uh the, the consistency of it and the apl- application of it that's why right now both before and after this bumper we'll be hearing from ayn rand again on time on tom snyder's show remember this is 1979 And Tom is talking to Ayn Rand about the state of America back in 1979, which was very parallel to what it is today. So let's listen in and see how much history really does change over 30 or 40 years. We'll be back after this.
3: How does Ayn Rand philosopher view the United States of America today? People waiting in gasoline lines, people fearing a possible recession, People wondering whether we will survive as a nation because of military posturing by other countries around the world.
5: Tell me how you feel That's a pretty big mm -hmm. statement right there. But first of all, to sum it up, I feel that this country is being destroyed by its philosophy, specifically by its universities. The most dangerous thing in this country today are the universities because they're teaching the kind of ideas that would necessarily have to lead... To the destruction of this country i think that the american people is too good for that kind of program you notice that the people are turning to the right that's a very healthy sign but there is no leadership on on the right there is no intellectual leadership there are no ideas Uh, and it's very possible that the people will be defeated for lack of proper intellectual leadership However, the basic premises... Excuse me, but
3: then you don't mean Harvard intellectual leadership or Yale intellectual leadership.
5: I mean a Harvard that would be preaching American ideas, more specifically reason, individualism, capitalism. If an institution of the intellectual prestige, which they don't deserve today, but they deserved it at one time, of Harvard, If an institution of that magnitude were preaching the proper ideas, that is, the ideas on which America originally was based, or to say it briefly, the philosophy of Aristotle, which was the father of this country, who was. uh, If they were doing that, you could have the biggest renaissance in the world, still not too late, even now you could have a better renaissance than the first one. This country would come back to life. But today, when all those institutions from Harvard on down are preaching collectivism, mysticism, and above all, altruism, self-sacrifice of yourself, the giving up, the resignation, all the disgusting kind of ideas that the whole world has been nurturing for centuries, When they do that, this country can survive.
3: Can you give me a, can you be a little bit more specific? I've never been to Harvard. I've never been to class there, but can you give me an example? That's your advantage. Oh, thank you. Of how they are teaching sacrifice, how they are teaching altruism?
5: Well, open daily paper and look at Mr. Carter, a very peculiar creature, who is telling you that we're going to uh, overcome The oil shortage, by driving less, by giving up, let us all make a sacrifice. Let's lower our standard of living, and we'll all be living better. Now, is that a proper philosophy to tell a country that has pride and self-esteem? At one time, with all the faults in American intellectual equipment, and there were a lot of faults, at least people were taught pride in their own country. And in the good aspects, the great achievements of this country.
6: What
3: do you think is going to happen to the United States of America if we keep going this way? If we keep going
5: this way, total collapse. But I still think... That we won't keep going this way. That what will save this country is not its intellectuals, but the people. Because they've rebelled already without much intellectual prodding. That they've already becoming aware of the fact that we have to go to the right and not more welfare state. That's a great, great uh, uh, tribute to the intelligence of the people. Only I want to make something clear. I am not a conservative. I think that today's conservatives are worse than today's liberals. I think they are, if anyone destroys this country, it will be the conservatives. Because they do not know how to preach capitalism, uh, to explain it to the people, because they do nothing except apologize and because they are all altruists. They are all based on religious altruism. And on that combination of ideas, you cannot save this country. Mm-hmm. The trouble with this country is that it was based on the right philosophy, originally, by the Founding Fathers, but they did not have a moral code to match the, the political ideas which they had. You love this country, don't you? Passionately. Yeah. Very, very much. And consciously. I love it for its ideas. And I've seen enough of the other side. So I can appreciate this country.
3: You might even get emotional about this country, huh?
5: Oh, yes. <laughs> Why do you want me to get emotional?
3: <laughs> might even thank God for it, huh? Yeah.
5: Yeah. I may not uh, literally mean a God, but I like what that expression uh, means. Thank God or God bless you. Uh, it means the highest possible to me. And I would certainly thank God for this country.
2: So much for John Moore's comments on Ayn Rand's opinion of religion and God, as as I expressed them last week on the show. Um, Welcome back to the show, 519-661-3600. To join us on Just Right, I'm I'm joined by Robert Vaughn in the studio here today, and we're talking about basically altruism, choice, and government debt, and now ideology. Scott ran into an interesting article on July 30th, Robert. Um... National Post commentary headed at the end of obama Is that how you would pronounce it? (laughs) Uh, Written by Terence Corcoran. And he writes, we are only at the start of an epic ideological battle over limiting the size of government. And, again, that was in the July 30th National Post. To control the deficit explosion he helped create, Mr. Obama called for a balanced approach that would cut some spending and raise taxes on the millionaires and billionaires who are not paying enough to maintain the expanded role he wants for government. Right now, the political market for such policies, especially tax increases, is non-existent. The discovery of the limits of statism is no American invention. Nor is it strictly an ideological movement, Across the developed world, the financial markets, which means investors and savers, are pushing for major fiscal reform, end quote. Now, although I agree with basically what he said there economically, I have some problems with what he's writing here. He says he said it's not a strictly ideological movement, um, the limits of statism. Well, yeah, it is. <laughs> both the move to statism and the move away from statism are both ideological movements. Statism is an ideology caused by ideas. And it's interesting that after writing about the start of an epic ideological battle, it's curious that Corcoran does not once not once mention the nature of the ideological battle in ideological terms. Instead he uses economic terms of reference, citing debt and deficits as evidence that we need to abandon statism. That doesn't prove anything, right? It's
4: a pragmatic conservative yes. argument.
2: But I see no ideological battle at all, neither in his argument nor in the political landscape. In fact, I see no evidence of there being two different sides in the so-called battle of ideology, that is. I think both sides are on the same ideological side, but they have different ways of approaching altruism and, and just redistributing other people's wealth. They both believe in that. I mean, let's face it, Ernie Eves here, supposed right-winger, you know, <laughs> former, former head of the Conservative Party, said the purpose of government is to redistribute wealth said it two or three times. Yeah, Hitler's In, had the same idea. In it's just amazing. And, you know, ideology pr- precedes politics and economics as the force that determines the direction of the latter two. If you want to have fiscal f- reform, you have to have ideological reform. It doesn't happen any other way. Now... This leads up to a problem, you know. It's been my experience that financial investors never push for reform unless it increases their wealth, and we hear them talking all the time. And whether the wealth is earned or comes at the expense of others has always been irrelevant to the investment market. Stock markets go up and down, irrespective of government policy, even irrespective, essentially, of the, of the condition of the economy. You can make money in a bad economy, except in one circumstance, and that's when the money runs out or is debased, inflated, <laughs> to the point of uselessness. That's when they start noticing that what they're doing is ideologically inappropriate. <laughs> you know. But when the business and investment community call for tax cuts, it's to pad their pockets, and it's never for ideological reasons. I never heard them say, oh, we want this because it's wrong to steal from our neighbor. No, they say it's because it hurts the bottom line. right? <laughs> yes. Something like that, which is precisely the problem. Most of the investment and business community is not capitalist in the sense of a separation of state and economics. They're quite happy living with statism and centralized government management of the economy as long as their profit statements look good. Terence Corcoran confirms this attitude in a subsequent August 4th commentary in which he writes, quote, "...the flood of grim statistics on the U.S. economy has much more profound origins than what's behind the U.S. debt ceiling crisis." To those of us outside of the economics profession, the sound of the internet internal crash of the pillars of interventionism is becoming deafening. The world is struggling under a burden of growth-killing policies, he writes. Then Corcoran gives us an an eye-opening list of such policies from poorly thought-out capital requirement rules, banking regulations, a constant state of assault on the world's energy markets, green energy initiatives that kill jobs by the tens of thousands, and a constant State attack on the auto industry, which is also driven by the green initiatives and fuel efficiency regulations created by Fiat. You know, the law, not the car company. <laughs> Just to make sure. Okay, uh, you know, I thought about that when I saw that. Oh, that's a car company. So Fiat currency is yeah. not like <laughs> no, no. car. <laughs> So he writes, whatever they teach in economics these days, some logic must seep into the curriculum. This is not a growth plan. To end the many debt crises, the first step should be to abandon growth-killing policies. With growth, even debts cease to be a problem. Now, isn't that interesting? So he says, we've got to kill the policies, not the ideologies, not the practices and beliefs, just, you know we will outgrow the problem this is totally conservative ideology it this. is the, the we can grow ourselves out of debt argument has been chanted throughout the historic ages and yet i've never seen it done it certainly isn't an ideological position or argument nor is it even an economic one for that matter really it's an economic wish it's not an argument it's a wish gee yeah maybe we'll grow ourselves out of debt yeah i wish we would too Mike Aubrey of of Sharon, Ontario, in a letter to the editor of the National Post, writes, read the end of Obamonomics, Terence Corcoran, in responding to this. And I think he said better here what, what, what Corcoran was trying to say. He writes, our society is becoming increasingly polarized between those who recognize their responsibility to work and support themselves, sounds like what you were saying, Robert, and those who believe it is right for the government to force other people to support them. These two broad groups of people have been referred to as the makers versus the takers, the producers versus the parasites, among other labels. The looming battle between the two will determine whether or not Western civilization survives. If the takers and parasites win, Western civilization will collapse. Their economic policies are not sustainable, and the makers and producers have had enough. Now, that's what he wrote very quickly. I thought it was an excellent article. And it has elevated... Corcoran's economic argument to a moral argument, but it still describes symptoms and not really causes. Uh, You know, systemic debt is not not caused by continually spending more than you earn or have. It's caused by a belief system, an ideology that makes the holder of that ideology succumb succumb to the false belief that one can get away with it. In politics, you know, at least long enough not to be held responsible for the consequences, right? The critical elements of a debt ideology are many, and I think we can talk about a lot of them after this coming break. But first we want to hear a little bit, this next clip is by, actually, Leonard Peikoff, who, of course, was the heir to the Ayn Rand estate and worked with Ayn Rand. This is from a 1984 debate that occurred, actually, in Toronto, Ontario. And again, he's talking about state control and where it may lead us. And we'll, we'll continue the conversation on the other side of this.
0: Now, having said all that, I nevertheless despair of arguing on this topic because I do not think you can argue about politics by itself. Politics is not a primary. Whether you are a socialist or a capitalist depends upon basic philosophic questions. Our opponents have already uh, appealed to the Sermon on the Mount and by implication have rejected reason in the suggestion that rationality is subjective and that one person's rationality is not somebody else's. So they have an entirely different philosophic framework, so it's no wonder that they are socialists. (laughs) It also happens to be the case that the thing is entirely rigged against us because the universities in this country and in the United States are entirely skewed in favor of the two ideas that socialism depends on, namely, the rejection of reason and the insistence on self-sacrifice. That absolutely (laughs) dominates. You can take the typical college graduate and see it very easily by asking him what he thinks and as soon as you say anything he will say well it's all a matter of opinion who can know anything there's no absolutes etc in other words he's been brainwashed to conclude his mind is helpless except although you can know nothing he knows one thing it's bad to live for yourself you got to live for the society for the poor or whatever how he knows that is presumably by revelation now in In my book, uh, The Ominous Parallels, I point out that this exact same intellectual situation existed in Weimar, Germany, and Hitler counted on it and cashed in on it, specifically on this kind of unreason and this kind of intense commitment to self-sacrifice on the part of the Germans. And uh, the result was that socialism triumphed. Nazism is socialism. It's one form of socialism, and if... It is that in theory, and it was that in practice. Let us define our terms. I I, I think we would have had a definition of socialism by now. Government control over property. Are you going to tell me that in Nazi Germany there was such a thing as private property and free independent action? If so, you have never been there. You don't know what you're talking about. Only for the rich. Now, Hitler... Hitler was able to rise to power in Germany because he had no opposition. He had his liberals and conservatives just as we have in this continent. I'll just be... Can I take one of you a minute? The liberals in Germany at the time said, let's have more economic controls. The conservatives said, no, let's have more intellectual controls by the government. And Hitler said, you're both right, let's have total control. (laughs) The only antidote to this development is somebody who says, let's not have government control. Let us stand up for the rights of the individual as absolute to his life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. Regardless, he has no obligation except to live as a rational being. If, if we can't establish that, there is no hope. So...
6: I just don't believe that there is nowhere we can cut down. I see waste everywhere. Well, I agree with you, (laughs) Minister. There is certainly scope for economy. Well, where? Well, I sometimes feel that the very way we do things is on too lavish a scale. You know, cars, furnishings, entertainments, private (laughs) office stuff... Duplicating machines. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, that's where we'll start. Magnificent. Yes, unfortunately, there is a difficulty. I knew it. Yes. You see, it does cause profound resentment if those at the top continue to enjoy the comforts and conveniences that they withdraw from those below them, not to mention the deeply damaging publicity. You mean you and I should set a personal example? Economy begins at home. We can't expect others to do what we don't do ourselves, can we? (laughs) it really
0: save all that much?
6: Well, not directly, no, but as an example to the whole public service. Incalculable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Jim, there'd be a lot of great publicity in it. The minister shows the way. Slimline government. Hacker set an <laughs> example. Save it, says Jim.
1: Yes, yes, that's it. Great. Where do we start?
2: Where do we start, eh, Robert? You know, we don't have a a lot of time left and I've got 24 or so (laughs) elements of what might be considered the elements of a debt ideology. Speak fast. Well, I can speak fast, we can go through a few, and I'm just wondering if there's any that catch your attention as I go through them. But I thought that, just thinking quickly, I thought some of the critical elements of, of the ideology of debt come from these factors. Uh, number one, a majority rule system typified by direct democracy advocates and systems and in, in direct opposition to the fundamental principles of democracy where people just you know vote for themselves and get some, get what they can from government. number two inflation the ability of governments to simply print money without having to be imprisoned for stealing the savings of everyone who holds dollars in the currency being inflated um, Number three, politicians who want to be not only elected but liked, like somebody we just heard just a couple seconds ago, <laughs> and yes, minister right there, as opposed to politicians who don't care about being liked but want to be respected and do the right thing. There's also the issue of doing the popular thing instead of doing the right thing. Popular can be right occasionally, but uh, you know, doing the wrong thing for ideology is, you know, is, is another issue entirely. Something for nothing, government programs and benefits, otherwise known as entitlements. This is not welfare we're talking about, but free things like health care, education, and continued entitlements that people feel, well, entitled to. I guess that's why we call them that, right? A big one, number six, centralized government planning of the economy. This is pure anti-capitalism, because that's the opposite of the definition of capitalism. Um, Picking winners and losers in the marketplace. That's what the government is doing when it does those things. Government job creation. Now there's an oxymoronic term if ever there was one Because really all they can do is take one person's job away and give it to another We just don't see it that plainly until we see the unemployment statistics.
4: That's the broken window. That's again Exactly
2: And then there's pragmatism talked a bit about that uh, in in the last couple weeks Which is anti-intellectual approaches to long-term planning resulting in expedience at the expense of reason um, political terms of office or be, you know, become the timeline of all government planning and non-planning because you just got to survive your your term in office, and that's what they just did in the states, right? They're going to cut what two trillion off the debt or off the deficits over ten years. That's like two and a half uh, administrations away. That isn't going to happen. Just won't happen. Green ideologies, anti-capitalistic at the root, anti-environmental in practice, ironically, because if it isn't economically um you know um efficient that's that's the word they like then it's not efficient we discussed that earlier in the year remember our first show on efficiency mm-hmm. the right to tax indiscriminately without boundaries or limits without any reason or justification required i remember remember in ontario we had a taxpayer's protection act <laughs> what happened to that <laughs> There's no such thing. It's a joke. You're laughing, yeah. And it, you know, it protects politicians from taxpayers when they raise taxes. That's what they put it in there for. We have the public's consent now, so you can't blame us, right? That's why they like pure democracy. Put everything to a referendum.
4: Anything we give you a choice to make, you know, it's your fault, not our fault. Pure democracy. I like the word unfettered democracy. Yeah. There are no restraints on the limits that they yeah. can do.
2: And all of those words, again, if you have to put an adjective in front of democracy, it isn't democracy. It's yeah. pretty well straightforward. And then there's an abandonment or neglect of the basics offered by government. Justice being replaced by egalitarianism, or in- injustice, if you want to put it that way. Another one, consent being replaced by force, in spending, and the choice of providers. We get that all the time. You know, Right now, Ontarians are being forced by their elected governments to buy very expensive power and electricity from a place they would not normally buy it. It's, it's just that kind of thing. We have minimum wage laws. That uh, have totally inflated our our currency, uh, put more people out of jobs, altruism and need as moral justifications for increased forced spending. That's the Samaritan trap, right there. You know, oh, we you know we let our emotions run away with us till we make things worse for ourselves. And here's one that I'll never figure out: is keeping the same people in power, election after election, failure after failure, and then counting on those same people to come up with solutions. <laughs> Like all these initiatives we're having in the city now, you know, all these job creation initiatives. Who are the people sitting around those tables? The unions and the politicians who created the mess in the first place. Their ideologies, their thinking that government has a role in planning the economy
4: is the very cause of all our problems right there. 200 years ago, the solution was just staring them in the face. Yeah. Laissez-nous faire. Get out of the way. Well, that was said to the King of England after he asked asked the local business people in France
2: what would well, what would they like the government to do for them? and they were they were wise enough to know,, uh-uh, we don't want the government to do anything for us. Let's say new fair, they yeah. said, right? Let us get on with it. That's exactly right. And then, of course, there's uh, this might be a weird one, but I think you know, legislation that prevents children from working for gainful employment and apprenticeship and, and labor monopolies. I think that's a big issue. We should talk about that sometime. Mm. Because I worked with, as a child, what I did as a kid, my dad took me to work on construction sites <laughs> that would be illegal as hell today. Um, I just think that's not good for kids. Uh, We see credit expansion and inflation generated by increasing fiat money supply, more dollars chasing the same or fewer goods. We're fighting perpetual foreign wars at taxpayer expense, wars that are now undeclared even, and we're just spending the money, out it goes. I mean, I I could go on and on, Robert, but all these activities are more conducted routinely and on a scale so vast, it's almost unimaginable to the average individual when you see debts in trillions and the only solutions offered by the same people is more of the same. You know, it's, it's just scary. So where do we go from this? You know, all, all I think everybody's secretly hoping that capitalism will magically reemerge to save the day, but all are hostile and intolerant of freedom and capitalism because that would reduce the power and pull, political power in the marketplace, you know, it's unearned. And that is the moral issue raised. And the only ideological solution to the initiation and the use of force is to stop and prohibit the use of such force in society. Free will, the subject of our show last week, and sounds like it will be next week too, is the ultimate solution to the economic condition.
4: Of course, that's not inevitable, but okay. Okay.
2: No, it isn't. But free will is the seemingly miraculous creator of true wealth, of something out of nothing. It's the closest we get to it. I was going to demonstrate it this week, but we don't have time. We'll have to do that next week, maybe in the context of of our continuing free will debate. But it's a process that very few of us give, give much thought about, you know, given the economic policies we morally tolerate from our governments. So that's just a basic quick one, too, over what I see as some of the ideological issues behind our debts and our government debts. But we'll continue with that when we return next week to also continue our journey in the right direction. All right, Robert? You going to be here? i would be. We'll see you then. And we know what everyone has to do. Be right back here, 11 o'clock next week. See
6: you color into black and white under the everything will be all right he wants to introduce preset failure standards on all council contracts over ten thousand pounds and make a named official responsible humphrey i know i know <laughs> you realize it'll be us next i mean once you specify in advance what a project's supposed to achieve and whose responsibility it is to see that it does Well, the entire system collapses. You're into the whole squalid world of professional management. I've tried to explain to him, I've tried to point out to him that his new responsibilities were for enjoying, not exercising, but I don't know. We already move our officials around every two or three years to stop this personal responsibility nonsense. (laughs) If this happened, we'd be posting everybody once a fortnight. He must be stopped.